0: Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Tim A. Simpson with me. He is an Associate Professor of Communications at the University of Macau. His research interests focused on Asian cities, consumer architecture and environments, Chinese tourism and consumption practices, material and immaterial forms of gambling, and ethnographic approaches to everyday life. Welcome to the show, Tim, and thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Excellent. So to start off with, what brought you to researching this topic and and to writing this book?
1: Okay, well, the book um, is Betting on Macau, and it's a book about the Chinese city-state, former Portuguese colony of Macau. And the way the book came about for me is that in 2001, 22 years ago, I moved to Macau to take a job at the University of Macau. I had been working at Ohio University in the United States. That was my first job out of um, graduate school. And Ohio University had some programs in Asia, one in Thailand and one in uh, Hong Kong. And they sent me to work in those overseas programs. And the more time I spent in Asian cities, the more I wanted to live in an Asian city rather than a small town in rural Ohio. So I started looking for a job uh, overseas, and I found this job at the University of Macau. And at the time, I didn't know anything about Macau, except vaguely that it was uh, uh, a Portuguese territory. But I didn't know anything about the history. So I moved to Macau in 2001, which was... Um, 18 months after Portugal returned the city of Macau to China after f- uh, about 450 years of colonial rule. And so when I moved here, I discovered that Macau had been one of the first uh, a- uh, European colonies in Asia. It was the first foreign territory in China. And then when Portugal handed it back to China in 1999, it was the last remaining Europe, uh, European territory in Asia, so I happened to move to Macau at an interesting time when um, the the it was the end of the era of colonialism. Essentially, Macau was the last colony, um, and it was the uh, the beginning of a shakeup in Macau's gaming industry because the city, the the new Macau government, the 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 government that formed up after the Portuguese administration left, um, decided to make some changes to the existing casino industry. And so I happened to arrive in 2001, right as all these things were happening. And that's when I first had the idea for writing a book about it. But it probably took another 10 years before I felt like I knew enough about China and Portugal and the gambling industry to really start writing the book. And then took another 10 years to finish it basically so that's the story of how i came to write this book
0: yeah even on the reader's side I, i'm gonna have to read it a few times to completely understand the complexities of gambling and in, in macau because it's not just gambling it's history it's morals it's values uh it's uh china uh, as compared to portugal and and all of that all of that complexity that created uh, you know sort of a perfect storm
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I I found Macau to be uh, right in at at the center of a convergence of a variety of factors that all happen to um, converge here at the same time. Uh, One is the history of capitalism. Another is the history of colonialism, Portuguese uh, colonialism. Another is the era of globalization. Another was China's post transformation into a, sort of a market society and consumer society. And another was just the takeoff of gambling as an a, a mode of uh, or a component of the economy, not only in Macau, but around the world. And all of those things kind of converged here at, at the same time. And it was just a lucky coincidence that I happened to arrive right when all that was happening, sort of.
0: And uh, I guess what was the significance of Macau becoming part of China? is that an important element of uh, of gambling in Macau?
1: Yes that's actually the key element that transformed everything about Macau's gaming industry So I should say that um, gambling casino gambling has been legal in Macau since the mid 19th century around 1852 the Portuguese administration legalized gambling. Um, and it always existed as a monopoly concession that the, the Portuguese government would grant to one uh, individual or one company in exchange for a share of the profits in the form of taxes on gaming. And so it was a sort of a important part of Macau's economy, but a very minor uh Casino industry compared to the other places in the world, but it existed for um, for about one hundred and fifty years uh, pro- up up until the handover when 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 Portugal returned Macau to China in nineteen ninety nine. And like I said, the uh, the local government that was created after the Portuguese administration left decided to break that monopoly and to allow foreign competition in the gaming industry. And and they had a a process of bids and applications. And then in the end, they granted some concessions to foreign companies um, who who were, came in and built sort of transformed the gaming industry. But the key to that transformation was Macau's return to China, um, which happened in 1999. Macau became along with Hong Kong, a what's called a special administrative region of China. So it's part of China, but it's apart from China at the same time. Um, Both Macau and Hong Kong rejoined China as special administrative regions with the idea that they would maintain their existing uh, economic and legal systems for 50 years after their, their return. So they are both Hong Kong and Macau were capitalist economies they were quite different from each other because Hong Kong had a British colonial system and Macau had a Portuguese colonial system, which are actually quite different. The cultures of these two cities were, are very different. The, the ambiance, the appearance, the ambiance is very different. Even though they're very close together, they're completely different, Macau and Hong Kong. But they're also, in, in many ways, quite different from mainland China. Uh, even though there's Chinese culture in all three places. There are three different sort of types of Chinese places. And so, but when Macau uh, rejoined China in 1999, um, it opened up the possibility of Chinese tourists who, who hadn't really existed up until that time. That was a new category of the Chinese population was overseas tourists. Um, They were, Allowed to come to Macau and Hong Kong to visit, and it was that uh, insurgence of millions upon millions, and then tens of millions, and then you know even more than that, tourists every year coming from China that really transformed Macau. So, China, Macau's rejoining China was key to its uh, the success of its casino gaming industry after 1999.
0: Yeah, sort of a renewal of leisure, recreation and gambling in Macau that that, uh, you know, previously uh, was maybe at the very least condemned, if not forbidden by, you know, China. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Gambling
1: is illegal. Casino gambling is illegal in China. Um, It was there's a long history of gambling as a popular pastime in Chinese culture, Chinese society. But strictly speaking, Um, I guess under the the socialist regime, under the Maoist regime, it was declared illegal and it has continued to be illegal. There's a lottery in China, but beyond that, there's no other forms of gambling that are permitted. So Macau is the only place in China that has a legal casino gaming industry. And therefore, um, because of the popularity of gambling among Chinese people, uh, it's natural that The the easiest place for aspiring gamblers to go is is Macau. They can stay within the country, but they can enter a special administrative region of Macau, which has a different legal system where casino gambling is legal. So and that's the key to Macau's economy. That's the key to the success of its gaming industry as the Chinese gambler.
0: And another thing that I found interesting, though, is even in the performance of uh, of gambling and gaming, in Macau is uh, seems to be different than what the experience might be like in Las Vegas. Can you talk a bit more about that in terms of uh, exhibitionism and debauchery in Macau and how it is, you know, different there than it is in what we might experience in uh, U.S. proper, Las Vegas, Nevada?
1: Yeah, um, that's a very good question, and let me just step back for a moment to to, uh, paint a picture of Macau's casino industry so I can compare it and contrast it with the one in Las Vegas. So um, after 1999, the government of Macau decided to end the casino monopoly in Macau. And that casino monopoly had been controlled for the previous 40 years by a local billionaire, a Hong Kong billionaire named Stanley Ho, who's very famous, uh, uh, rich, uh, wealth, wealthy tycoon in Asia. And he was the most important person in for Macau's economy during that 40-year period. He owned a large part of the city, and he controlled the gam- the gaming monopoly. And even though it was a relatively small-time gaming industry, and Macau, by the way, is a tiny little place, very, very small territory, Um when I moved here, it was nine square miles. It, it gets bigger and bigger because they continually reclaim land and, and, and increase the size of it. But it's very, very tiny place. Um, and it was a Portuguese trading port. That was how it was for originally created uh, 500 years ago. Um, so Stanley Ho controlled the gaming monopoly for 40 years, and the government decided to break that monopoly and allow outside competition. And as a result, several uh, foreign gaming operators got concessions to open casinos in Macau. One of those people was Steve Wynn from Las Vegas, the Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas. Another was Sheldon Adelson, also from Las Vegas, who owned the Venetian um, and and other uh, casino resorts in Las Vegas. And several other people. One was uh, uh, Lu Chi Wu, who was a property tycoon from Hong Kong, and uh, several other companies ended up with concessions. But one of the key people then was Sheldon Adelson, who came to Macau with the uh, vision of build it, creating something like the Las Vegas Strip in Macau. And there was an empty parcel of reclaimed land by the airport that the government had created um, just before I arrived. And when I arrived in Macau in 2001, that parcel of land was like a swamp. It was, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere. There was a long causeway that had been constructed to, to connect two islands together. So you could drive from one Island to the other. And there was just this swampy parcel of half finished land alongside the causeway. And I wondered why in the world, Did anybody create that land? What would they ever do with it? Because there was no way to envision that Macau would become a popular destination. But Sheldon Adelson, when he came, um, had the idea of creating a Las Vegas strip and he thought he could do it out on that undeveloped parcel of land. Although the first time he was granted permission to buy that land or to lease it and he went out there to look at it, he was quoted as saying, Thank you for, to the government. Thank you for the land, but I can't find it because it was just a swamp. And so he had to actually reclaim himself that reclaimed piece of land. But he had the vision of building an entire Las Vegas strip there, um, of which he would own, his company would control a variety of the properties. And that's essentially what happened. That area of the city is called Kotai because it was uh, reclaimed between the islands of Kalawan and Taipa. So they took the first letters of Kalawan and Taipa to make Kotai. And he created something like the Las Vegas Strip, but he called it the Kotai Strip. And he trademarked that name before anything was built. And then he started constructing properties there. And other casino concession holders also constructed properties there. And they did create a Cotai Strip. It looks like the Las Vegas Strip from a distance. It has even some of the same themed uh, resorts like the Venetian and the Parisian and so on. Um, it's, it's a string of a dozen mega resorts, integrated mega resorts. Um, so it looks like a Las Vegas Strip. But anybody who's been to Las Vegas knows that Part of the entertainment of going to Las Vegas is just going to the strip and watching the parade of people walking up and down the strip. And you can just stroll around or you can sit at a bar on the on the side of the sidewalk and watch people come and go. And it's just a crazy scene of people um, uh, hanging out in in Las Vegas in public, um, walking around in bathing suits, showing off their tattoos or smoking cigars or marijuana drinking uh, cocktails and large and, and huge, tall glasses and so on. And sort of the, everybody becomes part of the parade. But one thing you'll notice about the Kotai Strip, if you go there, is there's no such collection of people walking up and down the street. It's a, it's a very different ambiance um, because the reason people come to Macau, the main reason, primary reason, is simply to gamble. and they're, And they're not wasting time sitting outside and watching people walk up and down the street. They're inside the casinos and they're busy uh, at work at the tables. And this has actually always been the challenge of the casino industry in Macau, was how to convince people to not only gamble, but to also partake of all the other entertainment opportunities. Um, And the Macau government's under a lot of pressure to diversify the economy away from the hardcore gambler. Um, But it's hard to get people to do anything other than simply gamble. They will definitely eat at nice restaurants and they'll definitely spend a lot of money in high-end retail shops, Louis Vuitton and Hermes and Prada and places like that. But primarily tourists come here to gamble. Um, And that's one reason the ambiance is different. It's not to say they're not having fun because, of course, they're coming here for fun, but you don't see quite the same... Uh, parade of exhibitionism and debauchery on the Kotai Strip that you see on the Las Vegas Strip. But I should say that's not to say there's no debauchery. Macau is, is a city. It has its own sinful attractions, just like Las Vegas is a city of sin. So there's all kinds of things happening, but you don't see it so overtly like you do in Las Vegas.
0: And uh, what game is their game of choice? It's, it's not slot machines, is it?
1: That's very true. In Las Vegas, the the I, I should say it like this. When people go to Las Vegas, they go for to do a variety of things at the same time, and gambling is just one of those things. Um, they might go to 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 take on the in the spectacle on the strip. They might go to dance in a nightclub, to eat at a nice restaurant or a steakhouse. To drink champagne, to rent a limousine, to do all those things that uh, to go to a show to see a Celine Dion show or Liberace or something like that or a magic show, Carrot Top comedy show, those are all the attractions of Las Vegas, and gambling is just one among many attractions. Whereas in Macau, the, the Macau offers a lot of those attractions, but they're not very popular. People, what's popular is gambling. It's the casino itself. The game that's most commonly played in Las Vegas is slot machine. Most gamblers, I think something like 60% of the revenue on the strip is made from slot machine gambling. And that's what most tourists like to do. Um, In Macau, the slot machine is not very popular. Only about 5% of the casino revenue comes from slot machines. Um, And the, the most popular kinds of games in Macau are table games, the conventional games where you sit at a table and gamble because gamblers in Macau seem to like to gamble head to head against the house against a live dealer. Um, and there's a variety of reasons they like to do that. So they like to play table games and in, in Las Vegas, when people do play table games, the most popular game is poker in all the varieties of poker that you can play. Um, I guess No Limit, Texas Hold'em is a very popular poker game, but there's a variety of them. Um, so in Las Vegas, most people play slot machines, a few play table games, but in Macau, what's popular is table games and the number one game by far is Baccarat. And that's the the, the key to the gaming industry in Macau. Everybody plays Baccarat. Um, and that, that's almost the story it's not the sole table game, but it's almost the only table game anybody wants to play. Um, so all of the the gambling is focused on the game of Baccarat, and all the revenue comes from that game as well.
0: So one of the interesting things about uh, Macau is, is you talk about the culture, and you talk about how a gambling is is a primary reason for uh, why people come to Macau, and for the gaming, uh, for the gaming particularly, or... Mostly, uh, however, uh, you write in your book that uh, Macau is growing at at an extremely fast rate, faster than Vegas. Uh, you write that in between two thousand eleven and two thousand and thirteen, uh, that China had consumed more uh, consumed more cement than America did over the entire twentieth century. Does this suggest that maybe the future of Macau uh, might eventually start uh, looking more like Las Vegas as it? Continues to develop and maybe as cultural values or morals start to, to change, what do you think?
1: That that's a very complex question. There's several several issues that you you raised there. Um, so let me just uh, think about how best to respond to that. Um, for sure, Macau has grown very fast since I've been here. The 22 years I've been here, I would venture to say that it changed faster and more radically than any place on earth in that particular period. It's hard to describe how different Macau is today from how it was when I arrived in 2001. Um, And that transformation of Macau is driven by the transformation of China. So the only place that changed uh, as rapidly uh, and as dramatically as Macau during that period is China. China's changes really started with the implementation of economic reforms by Deng Xiaoping in 1978. Um, but that process of reforming the economy, even though it started in 1978, it didn't begin immediately. It took a while to ramp up and to be taken seriously and to um, uh, and to start developing. So that. Uh, but but the, the transformation of China, the post Mao transformation of China, has been dramatic. And it's kind of paralleled and driven the transformation of Macau and Macau's casino gaming industry because it's the changes in the, the Chinese economy and in the Chinese population and in the Chinese subject, and particularly the subject of the tourist and the consumer that's been so important to Macau's transformation. So the um, the statistic you mentioned about the amount of cement that has been poured in China uh, in a very short period of several years was equal to the amount that was poured in America over the 20th century. That's a statistic from the American Geological Survey. Um, and, the, and it points up just how dramatic is the the physical uh, infrastructural transformation of China. And it's a state-driven transformation sort of authored by the central government, um, which is designed to urbanize the, the country, um, to, to take a, a country which was primarily rural and personified by the rural peasant, who was the, the key um figure for uh chinese socialism under mao and it transformed that that country into the most urbanized country in the world and if there's been this rapid uh urbanization of china that that has happened at a at a pace maybe faster than happened in america in the 20th century but it's certainly the scale is larger than America's was, and that's why it requires so much cement because even though China geographically is not really bigger than the United States, which is also a huge country, the population is so much bigger. And if we compare the population of China today to America at the start of the uh, of the 20th century, we we're talking about five times larger population. So the scale of that transformation of China's is, is massive. and Macau is sitting right on the very southern edge of China. It's a little tiny um, port city. And so geographically, it's right on the edge of China. And then in 1999, it was returned to China. So it became politically uh, part of China as a special administrative region. And that's what drove the development of the casino industry. So... The second part of the question you asked was, um, will Macau become more like Las Vegas as a result of all those changes? And this is actually a key question right now um, for Macau because China, the central government, is really pressuring Macau to diversify away from its reliance only on the casino gaming industry um, as the key pillar of its economy. And Macau has become fabulously wealthy over the last 20 years in the sense that um, the, the I should mention the, go, the, the local government um, takes uh, about 40% tax on casino revenues. And compared to Las Vegas, the tax I think in Las Vegas is 6.5% on casino revenues. So in Macau, it's 40%. So as the casinos... Uh, started generating all this wealth. It generated a lot of money for the government, and so by the just before the start of the COVID pandemic in 2019 or 2018, Macau was uh, the, the, the IMF declared Macau the second wealthiest territory in the world in terms of per capita income, second only to Qatar. And they projected that Macau would overtake Qatar and become the wealthiest place in the world. But that was that that development, that prediction was stymied by the pandemic, which totally devastated uh, Macau's economy for several years as the city was closed off to almost all tourists. But um, the, the central government is really pressuring Macau to diversify the economy and essentially to become like Las Vegas. That's the goal. They want Macau to be more like Las Vegas. It's it's fine to have tourists and to have a tourism industry, but it would be great if people were spending money on other things in addition to gambling, uh, you know, going to shows and uh, eating at restaurants and all those other uh, activities that are so popular in Las Vegas. Um, but, uh, but also Macau's under a lot of pressure to develop other kinds of industries that might, uh, to, t- to take the money made from gambling and develop other kinds of industries as well. So anyway, the, there's an effort to make Macau more like Las Vegas, but it's very difficult. And whether that'll happen, uh, we'll have to wait and see.
0: And then that's a you know that's an, an interesting negotiation whether uh, consumption opportunities drive uh, drive tourism or whether the tourists drive what op- options are available for consumption. And you said that the Macau uh, industry for consumers is is different than what we have in in Las Vegas as a result of you know what they spend most of their time doing there and, and whether that can be. Uh, whether major social forces can change that behavior is, is yet to, to be seen, right?
1: Yeah, very true. But one thing that, that I find interesting and that I try to explore in the book is um, the state directed uh, the, the state direction of things that happen in China. That, that there are central government decisions policy decisions that are then implemented in five-year plans and 10-year plans and 20-year plans with with goals of accomplishing certain things. And sometimes these are massive movements of the entire society in a certain direction, and they are implemented from the top down in very uh, complex ways. So it's not sort of left up to the market to Determine what will happen. There are policy decisions which are uh, which which have specific end goals, and maybe that's true everywhere. Certainly, though, it's true in China, and uh, the size of the the of the government and the authority of the government allows for China to 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 be very driven, the state directed in, in in the policies. So one policy, which is very crucial for Macau's development, is China's, the the policy I mentioned earlier, which is uh, the decision by China to try to urbanize the population, to take a rural, primarily rural population, relocate people to newly built cities, and to turn them into urban citizens. And the reason for this, according to the the policy plans, of which are released by the Chinese government according to their own policy, the the desire is to create a um, domestic consumer economy, because they think this is a key to sustaining economic growth. Um, they they the China's economic reforms after 1978 were first implemented by making China into the factory for the world. They created a series of special economic zones along the China, the Chinese coast, and they used those zones to create joint manufacturing enterprises with that, that were cooperations between the Chinese government and foreign entrepreneurs. And they were staffed by uh, rural, formerly rural citizens who were who were relocated to the special economic zones to work in factories and to produce things for export. It was a production for export regime. And it worked very well. For the first decade after China's economic reforms were implemented, China became the factory for the world and the economy exploded as a result. But the central government realized over time that that was not a sustainable system. And they decided that the key to sustaining growth was to create a domestic consumer society in China. And so the goal is to urbanize the population in order to make them into urbane consumer citizens who will move to cities, buy houses, buy cars, uh, buy fashion, cosmetics, and eat at restaurants and spend their money um, on consumer activities. And this is a radical departure from the, 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 the socialist economy where people were expected to behave very differently. As kind of aesthetic uh, um, workers who did not consume, who were not consumers, um, so this was a this is a decision by the central government to create a population of consumers, and tourism is one part of that process. And the central government has opened up. Um, the population to overseas tourism and, and domestic tourism, in part to help foment them as consumers. Uh, part of the, the whole idea of, of the tourism in China is to create a con- tourism and consumption economy uh, to aid the economy. And in fact, China implemented three, uh, after economic reforms, actually right around the year 2000, just around the time I moved to Macau, China implemented three annual Golden Week holidays where the entire population has a holiday for, for one week. That's why it's called a Golden Week. And the entire idea is that people should travel and, and consume, spend money. And so tourism was mobilized as part of that uh, attempt to transform China's economy. And so Macau benefited from that because when you create a Golden Week holiday, and you encourage people to travel, and then you enable them to travel to the newly, the new parts of China, which are Macau and Hong Kong, those are the easiest places for people to go. So um, Macau's economic development is a a product of that top-down policy decision by the central government to try to create an urban society, to try to create a tourism, Focus society to try to get people consuming, and to use uh, policies and regulations in order to promote that kind of um, outcome. And so, my, my point in saying all this is, it's not just left up to the market to determine what will happen. It's really, in in this case, a state-driven, top-down, uh, policy-oriented process, and Macau just happens to be one uh, lucky beneficiary of that process because the, the Chinese tourist is perfectly positioned to travel to Hong Kong and Macau. Hong Kong and Macau have been the biggest beneficiaries of this, of these policies.
0: And that also resulted in a shift from manufacturing to an entertainment or experience-based economy, right? So uh, sort of moving to the service technology era that, uh, that we are also in here in the United States of America, but uh, um, well, well, Maybe at a, at a at a faster rate, and maybe it's it, it's growing, uh, growing to be more popular in China with what you're talking about with Macau being a, an extremely large industry, um, only maybe second to Qatar as you were mentioning earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, the the experience economy. Uh, is key to everything. Uh, Many of the jobs in Macau are what we would call emotional labor or immaterial labor or affective labor. They're croupiers in the casinos or they are driving the the gondolas inside the canals, which are in the Venetian mega resort, um, or they're uh, working in PR and marketing for the casinos, recruiting high roller gamblers to come Uh, spend time in Macau. Um, So this kind of experience economy is is key to everything. Uh, And China is definitely experimenting with that as well. And and the youngest, the young Chinese population, people who are the age of my students are as tuned in as anybody in the world is to enjoying the experience economy, to learning about um, to, to, to be an influence by online uh, key opinion leaders and to show up at the places that everybody promotes as interesting tourist places and to take selfies there and post them on social media. China has a, a massive industry uh, around that. And th- that's all part of Macau's economy as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You talk about the young people and I, I think back to even some of the games that, that I've studied with tug of war and, and how they prepare young people to become part of the popular culture, just as much as the people who are already in it. And, and what you mentioned about young people and, and, and them getting involved uh, in and, and similar industries is this risk-taking industry. Maybe that you're that uh, that at least I'm speculating that they might be talking about young people getting involved in. What is this uh, significance of risk-taking in, in terms of you know gambling? Does that is that something that makes it attractive?
1: Absolutely, I think it's it's all about speculation and risk, um, and that's what makes it exciting to gamble. Um, and, and actually, I would say uh, in terms of young people, maybe gambling is not as popular with the, with this immediate young generation as it is with the older generation, at least in China. So this may be a problem for Macau's casino economy. I think this is part of the, 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 the challenge is how do you create gambling opportunities that appeal to young people who are more interested in things like video games uh, than they are in uh, gambling at the baccarat table but to talk about the hardcore gambler in macau yes it's all about risk and um i should talk a little bit about why the game of baccarat is popular because it it illustrates something about attitudes toward risk as well as toward um luck and speculation so uh, what i try to do in the book i should say is um I try to talk about the the relationship between gambling activity and economic activity. And there's a lot of uh, scholarship about gambling, which looks at gambling as kind of a representation of the economy. So there are people who talk about poker in the United States um, as a, the popularity of poker is sort of a representation of the the economic activity which is predominant at a particular historical era. There's a great book by a guy named Ole Berg called Poker, the Parody of Capitalism, where he he looks at the history of poker and he, he talks about how in different eras of capitalist development in the United States, different versions of poker became popular and they were a reflection or representation or, as he says, a parody of the kind of economic activity which predominated at the time. So he talks about draw poker as a representation of industrial capitalism, the kind of speculation that was typical of industrial capitalism. Then he talks about seven card stud as the next iteration of poker, which was a parody or representation of uh, the mid 20th century corporate capitalism, the rules of seven card stud are different from draw poker, and they they benefit a different kind of player. And he said they benefit the kind of risk taker, uh, the, the, the kind of careful risk taker that predominated in the era of corporate capitalism in the mid-20th century. And then he says the popularity of No Limit Texas Hold'em today, that's the poker game that's most popular today, is a parody of the freewheeling era of financialization. So, That's an example of what I mean when there are scholars who talk about gambling games as a kind of representation or parody of a particular uh, economic regime, which is popular at a certain moment. But I try to look at gambling in Macau in a very different way. Instead of looking at it as a representation of the economy, I try to look at it as a formative part of the economy, um, that that gambling is uh, activity in which people put to, into practice the, the a- economic performances or economic activities that are part of becoming an economic agent. And so I'm looking at um, how formerly socialist Chinese citizens are practicing or putting into practice the uh, economic activities of, of a market economy when they're gambling. And so I'm, I'm trying to approach gambling in a, in a way that's kind of distinct from the way it's normally talked about in, in, in scholarship. Uh, second of all, though, I focus on the game of baccarat, because like I said, it's the most popular game in Macau's casinos. Um, and I should say... There are the mass market casinos in Macau that, that where anybody can play. And then historically, there's also been a VIP industry in Macau where high rollers play. And this is where the huge amounts of money are gambled. And uh, Baccarat is the sole game played in the VIP rooms in Macau. It's, the VIP gamblers only play Baccarat. So it's it's a key. The Studying Baccarat is key to understanding, uh, I think, the Macau gaming industry, but it tells us something about the Chinese economy as well, because it's where it's one place where economic agents are sort of made in China. And what's interesting about Baccarat, uh, there's a couple of factors that are interesting. One is that it has the best odds of any table game in the casino. And this is one reason it's so popular in Macau is because if you're, if you want to, gamble and you want to play a table game, then it's entirely rational to choose Baccarat because it has the best odds. It has the lowest margin for the casino. The casino always has is always going to win over time because of the math of every casino game. But the odds of Baccarat provide the lowest margin for the casino and the best odds for the gambler. But the fact about Baccarat is that there's not really any skill involved. Although people who play will would argue with me (laughs) that there's skill, but it's not like poker where you can um, make decisions and you can read the behavior of the other player and try to determine what cards they have and what they're looking for. And, um, and you can try to bluff, you know, you can do things which, which clearly involves skill. Poker is a game of skill Um, or even Baccarat. I'm sorry, even blackjack where there are um, you know, there's clear odds for the casino. There's something called a basic strategy, which gives the gambler the best possible odds. If you follow the basic strategy, but you still make decisions about whether you want to take a card or, or, or not or hold um, whether you think the dealer is going to bust and you, 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 you make decisions at the table. But with Baccarat, you don't really make any decisions. There's two there's two places at the table marked as player. I'm sorry, this, the version of Baccarat, Punto Banco Baccarat, which is played in Macau. You don't really make any decisions. There's two places at the table labeled player and banker. Player and banker each get two cards. And before you know what those cards are, you just... Bet on whether player or banker will win. So you're really just making a random guess that one or the other will win, and there's no skill involved at all. Um, so you're asking about risk. Yeah, there's a huge amount of risk. Because it's like gambling on flipping a coin. Um, so uh, there, the, it, it's a it's a very specific type of gambling game, and when you play for high stakes it has a characteristic which in the gaming industry is called volatility because the swings of profit and losses for both the gambler and the casino are so large and so fast that they're, all, they're, they're, they're kind of unpredictable over the short term. Over the long term, every gambling game is predictable. The casino will always win because of the mathematical odds. But the math of, of Punto Banco baccarat is so odd or so esoteric or heterodox that the, the the casino in the short term just doesn't know what's going to happen. And it's this volatility of the game that makes it so exciting to play. The, the rules are so simple that it doesn't seem like it could be exciting. But for the gambler, it's very exciting. And I should add one more thing. Uh, another thing that makes it interesting in Macau is that there's a belief among players that um, they can intervene in the outcome of the game. And so there's a whole set of behaviors that people um, participate in that are designed to try to change the outcome of the game, to predict what's going to happen by reading the, 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 the outcome of previous hands, to watch patterns of, of, the, of whether p- the player or the banker wins each hand, and to predict what's going to happen, or even to intervene by chanting or blowing on the cards or banging on the table or or engaging in other ritual behavior that's meant to try to change the value on the face card. So when you combine the the, the odds of Baccarat, which are the best for the player in the casino, with the rules of Baccarat, which are this straight up and down, win or lose, yes or no, With no decisions, just a straight outcome like that, and then with the ability, the the belief, and the ability to intervene in the outcome, it creates this very interesting um, uh, economic activity for the gambler. And that's why I, in the book, I focus a lot on the game of baccarat towards the end of the book because I think it's uh, it's a really key to understanding. Um, gambling in macau but also economic activity in china as well Uh, so anyway that's that's kind of an answer to your question
0: yeah that's that uh that that is interesting in how how uh everyday gambling activity and gaming activity uh is foretelling of uh, of maybe well Beyond just see just see actual events that are taking place but also the way that china at large is is starting to shift moving from that production to consumption uh society right and and there's a lot of risk associated with the consumption society uh that um well there's less certainty i i think and and mass consumption than there is in mass production
1: yes yeah that's yes. that's a very good way to put it that's very true
0: there's more, yeah, a level of uncertainty, a level of not knowing whether, <laughs> whether people will wake up tomorrow and people will still be consuming the same thing.
1: Yeah, and, and because consumption, um, a, a consumer economy depends so much on the attitudes and beliefs of the population because people have to be confident if they're going to, if they're encouraged to buy something today that they don't really need because it's fashionable, um, they have to be confident that the economy is going, that they're going to have money tomorrow to spend on something else. So when, when the economic outlook is bad, people, they, they, they withdraw from consuming. So you're right. A production economy, a socialist production economy is much more predictable than a market consumption economy. Um, yeah, that's a very good way of saying it.
0: You know, the first thing that came to my mind with mass production is, uh, and maybe a socialist himself, would be uh, Henry Ford here in the United States and the, you know, mass production of the Ford Model T and and his idea of, uh, well, of a a worker welfare program. Like, he he truly wanted to have control over his his workforce and giving benefits and incentives to those who would live a, a Ford lifestyle, which, you know, is interesting, too.
1: Yeah, well, I I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of of another factor I should I should bring up, which is key to my analysis. Um I try to read uh I, I try to position Macau within the history of capitalism because Macau was formed uh 500 years ago at the very origins of the global capitalist system. The 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 Portuguese were the inventors of globalization they were the first country to 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 engage in maritime exploration followed very quickly by the spanish and then later by the dutch and the, the british and the french and so on but it started with the portuguese and macau and, and the, as they rounded as the portuguese left portugal rounded africa and then india and then uh, came to asia and they they developed. They 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 took over existing ports around the way and created colonial outposts to create a trade network. They eventually ended up founding the city of Macau. Macau was unique in Portuguese maritime uh, trade because it was the only city that the that was actually founded by the Portuguese. Normally, they took over existing ports. So, and, and Macau played a crucial role in the trade between China and Europe, through first through Portugal, and also between, uh, Macau played a role in the trade between China and Japan, because the emperor had forbidden uh, trade between China and Japan. And so it, it still happened, but it happened with the Portuguese's intermediaries. So Macau, when it was founded, was crucial to global capitalism, which was just developing at the time. Um, So it played a fundamental role in the origins of the global capitalist system. And then it sort of, as Portugal's uh, sort of faded, as Portuguese power sort of faded and, and it was replaced, Portugal was replaced by other colonial powers, Macau sort of faded into historical obscurity over time and became this kind of forgotten place. And then in Uh, When it was returned to China in 1999, after 450 years of rule, it sort of uh, reemerged as part of China's uh, new engagement with global capitalism in in the post-Mao era and during China's economic reform. So I want to place Macau within the history of capitalism because it started as a key uh, site, in 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 the origins of global capitalism, so I'm trying to look at what happens in Macau today uh, within that um, that that the history of global capitalism. So that's part of how the book is is kind of set up. Um, but then I also want to look at Macau uh, at, against the background of Chinese socialism, because the the tourists who are coming to to Macau today are primarily from China. Um, And they're coming from a socialist history. Um, And so I try to, when I analyze uh, sort of common environments in Macau, like a casino resort or common activities like gambling on a Baccarat game um, or or shopping in a retail outlet, I try to um, position them within the history of capitalism, but also within the more recent uh, history of socialism in China, and I try to read uh, a contemporary site in Macau against that that kind of historical background. So you mentioned Henry Ford creating the um, the 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 worker, the lifestyle for the worker, and you know China under um, socialism had a unique uh, sort of system which was centered around what's called a work unit, a Donway or work unit. So anybody who lived in a city in China during the Mao era would have lived within a work unit, which is a self-contained um, a, a factory or some other kind of um business, but which also has it has the work site as well as the the residence. It uh, provided a place to live, a job, food, education, healthcare, Uh, community, entertainment, it was all provided in this self-contained Donway or work unit. And people lived within the work unit and they socialized with the other members of the work unit. And this was how China provided cradle to grave security for the the socialist worker. And so when I look at something like the casino resort in Macau, the mega resort like the Venetian resort, which is also a self-contained environment that offers uh hotel rooms and restaurants and uh entertainment and retail shopping and all of the sort of elements of, of social life, I try to read it against the history of the Donway in China. And I try to look at um the the integrated resort in Macau as unique in that respect. It looks like the integrated resort in Las Vegas, but if we contextualize it within the history of China um, and and socialism in China, we can understand the the significance of the integrated casino resort for the Chinese tourists in, in a way that's different from how we would analyze a casino resort in Las Vegas. And so I try to look at the lesson that people learn when they visit the integrated resort, which is, to go back to your idea that a production economy uh, is predictable, but a consumption economy is not predictable. And you're left to fend for yourself um, when you're a, con- when you're a consumer subject in a market system. Um, the state is in the Chinese States, no longer going to provide all the things that were provided under socialism, like uh, healthcare and job and, Residents and so on, which the Chinese worker got in the Donway. Today, when that Chinese worker turned tourist visits Macau, they encounter something like that kind of environment in the integrated resort that has healthcare, uh, housing, food, education. The, the integrated resort in Macau has all those facilities, but none of it is provided for free. And the lesson is that the tourist has to learn to fend for themselves in a competitive market environment. And so that that's the example of the kind of approach I try to take in my analysis of the spaces of Macau, um, to look at all these spaces within the history of global capitalism, because Macau has had a role in that global capitalist system for 500 years, but also in the shorter history of Chinese socialism. And I think this is what makes Macau... Uh, Distinct from a place like Las Vegas, it looks like Las Vegas. It has the same integrated resorts that we would see in Las Vegas. It's full of tourists like Las Vegas, but the function of those tourists and the activities that they engage in are quite distinct from what happens in Las Vegas. And this is what I think makes Macau so fascinating, and why Macau is um, is not simply another Las Vegas, but it's a window into the transformation of China. Um, among other things, uh, which is happening at the same time and which we can kind of read um, obliquely by analyzing the activities of Chinese tourists in Macau.
0: And that's what I think I appreciate most about, about your book and uh, when reading it is the complexity about how you don't try to shy away from the complexities but instead see the intersectionality and the importance of all these different dynamics of, of a highly dynamic city, uh one that I, I think some might call it a global city, right this new fad, this new concept of global city where they're being reproduced but slightly uh, different in each location based on what based on based on some local elements that make it unique <laughs> but also similar to other global cities.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right and that's why I think Macau's so interesting. in some ways we can learn a lot about the global gaming industry. In Macau, we can learn about Las Vegas because there are Las Vegas operators, entrepreneurs in Macau and Las Vegas style casinos. Um, but for all the commonalities Macau has with Las Vegas or with um, casinos in Manila in the Philippines or in Vietnam or in South Korea, there's casino industries in many places, um, Atlantic City and so on. For all the similarities it might have, it's also radically different from those places. And I want to always contextualize Macau because um, it's a very interesting place. It is a global city and it it has always been a global city um, for 500 years, but it's been easily overlooked. It's a tiny place. It was off the radar for most Americans, certainly for me before I moved here and when I first moved here in 2001 and I would go visit the U.S. and tell people I was in Macau, they were never sure what I was talking about. And they they weren't even sure how to pronounce it. Macau was the way it was often pronounced. And they were confused by the fact that it's spelled two different ways, which is just one of those funny, um, quirky characteristics. It's spelled M-A-C-A-O and M-A-C-A-U. And which one is correct is no one can really... Uh definitively say how we should spell it. That's one of the funny things about the city. So for a few years, when I would return to to, to the US, nobody had heard of it. And then suddenly, um, the global the, the Macau gaming industry grew so big so fast it surpassed Las Vegas. One year, the gaming revenue surpassed Las Vegas. Uh, The next year, it was three times the gaming revenue of Las Vegas. The next year, it was five times more revenue than Las Vegas. The following year, it was seven times more revenue than Las Vegas. Um, the, 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 The biggest, I think 2013 was the most profitable year for Macau's casino industry, and it set the global record for all time of casino revenues, it was 45 billion US dollars that was earned that year. That was seven times greater than Las Vegas. And I think equal to all of the casino revenue produced in every gaming jurisdiction in the United States combined was produced in Macau. So this one very, very tiny city, much, much smaller than uh, places in the United States produced so much revenue. suddenly it was on the radar for all Americans. Suddenly people, when I would say I live in Macau, they, they, they knew what I was talking about, but they still don't know anything about it. Um, so the more you delve into it, the more fascinating, uh, a city you realize it is. It's been a global city for 500 years. It was like Casablanca. It was like that, that city of, uh, of vice and secret agents and, uh, organized crime that was that was inscrutable you couldn't figure it out it had that it has that history um that that dates back 500 years um and it's a it's a global it's it's the the world's biggest gaming industry in terms of the amount of money that it produces and so to understand that requires more than just saying it's another las vegas it's it has things characteristics in common with Las Vegas, but it's its own unique place and it's worthy of sustained attention because the more you start to dig into it, this is what I discovered after I moved here, the more interesting the story becomes. And uh, that's why I wanted to write the book. The more I, I found out about it, the more I realized there was a really a story to tell. But the problem is when I tried to tell the story, I realized it's a really complex story. And that's why it took me, took me ten years to write the book. And as you say, uh, I tried to appreciate the intersectionality of of Macau um, by tracing out all these uh, these paths, these things that intersect here, from uh, global capitalist history to Chinese consumerism to uh, the gambling industry, which all kind of converge here. So I'm, I appreciate that you, that, that, that was clear that you, you got my point when you read the book. I appreciate that. Yes.
0: Well, unfortunately we're out of time. However, I think that uh, we more than covered a few chapters of, of the, of the book and uh, uh, I hope the listeners can, can get a better perspective from this conversation that we had. So I, um, but there is one, there is time for one more question. And that is uh, what I'm wondering is what are you working on now, Tim? What's okay. Uh, yeah.
1: First of all, thanks very much for having me. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book with you. Um, I should mention one more thing about Macau's gaming industry, because it sets up the the answer to your question. What am I working on now? I mentioned earlier that Macau's um, gaming industry revenues benefited primarily from largely from VIP gamblers who were recruited from China primarily to come to Macau and the local, uh, um, hosts would, would, had, would loan them money to, to gamble loan sharking of a certain type is legal in Macau or was legal. And, um, people who wanted to gamble millions of dollars would benefit from somebody loaning them that money in Macau. That was a, a a primary part of Macau's gaming industry, VIP gambling. And that just last year was criminalized by the central government of China because China was so concerned about the amount of money which was leaving China, going into Macau's casinos and then going other places from there. Um, Whether that's money laundering or whether it's just people losing money at gambling, um, the, the Chinese government was estimating that one trillion ribbon B was leaving China every year through gambling activities, not only through Macau, but through other gambling, other sites as well. So the VIP gambling industry was essentially criminalized. Two of the most prominent people in that industry who, who operated the two largest VIP companies, and these are billionaires, these are multi-billion-dollar companies. They were both arrested and uh put on trial and it sort of devastated that part of the industry and i mentioned earlier that there's a there's a big focus a big uh, effort by the chinese government to pressure the macau government to to um diversify the economy away from its reliance on gambling and that was one that was one uh lightning bolt strike to to push macau in that way Um, The ending of the VIP gambling, which had been so lucrative. And so I'm interested now in understanding attempts to uh, diversify Macau's economy by creating entrepreneurial young people. The Macau government has some uh, policies that are designed to encourage young people to be uh, entrepreneurs, to start businesses, to try to do something different from gambling. And I, it just so happens that I live in, uh, the historic area of central Macau. I should mention Macau is the, the central Macau is a UNESCO world heritage site, um, because it has this 500 year, uh, history of Portuguese and Chinese architecture. It's very interesting. It looks like Lisbon, Portugal in the city center mixed with old China, um, so it's a very interesting uh, neighborhood, and it just so happens that where my apartment is is right on the edge of a of a historic area, historic neighborhood that the government is 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 keen to develop into a a, a kind of creative uh, arts district and and cultural industries district, and there are many many young people who are the age of my students at the university who have started businesses there, like little coffee shops and retail shops and so on. So I'm now turning to uh, to try to analyze through a qualitative study the way th- these policies help to create entrepreneurial young people in macau it's it's just my attempt to to study what's going to happen to macau next as we try to diversify away from the casino industry the casino industry will always be here it is the the key to macau's economy it's the only advantage macau has it would be foolish to end that because um th- that that's that's what macau has they have legal casino gambling that's the the the, the best option but it's not going to last forever and um there there are all these efforts made to try to figure out how do you diversify an economy like this and so i'm trying to study that in a hands-on way that's that's my that's the project i've started now so thank you for asking that i appreciate yeah, the chance to talk about it
0: it reminds me of richard florida I've been richard florida i've been reading some of his work and about the importance of a creative class in an economy
1: that's exactly it. Yeah, I'm exactly exploring those ideas that were so popularized by Richard Florida. when He talks about um, creative cities. How do you create a creative city and how do you attract a certain kind of resident and tourist visitor and, uh, and develop a certain kind of industry? And Macau government is very self-consciously trying to do that, too. So I'm just going to try to analyze whether, how, how successful that is and how it works, basically.
0: So well, I look forward to this next book once, once it comes out to have you on the show again <laughs> to talk about it. Uh, we we could sit around and drink coffee or, or tea and, and, and have conversations like this all day. Um, but this show has come to an end. And again, this is uh, another episode of New Books in Sociology. And Tim Simpson was on the show today. Thank you, Tim, for being here.
1: I appreciate it. Good to talk to you.